0: Now, if you have your Bibles, let us go again to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6, Hebrews chapter 13, sanctity and safety in life, or sanctity and security in life. So, tonight we want to consider verse 5 and 6, Hebrews 13, but uh, verse 4 through 6 belong together. Hebrews 13, beginning verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Great verses, aren't they? So we want to consider these, uh, verse 5 and verse 6. Now, these, these little admonitions that we have here in the epistle to the Hebrews in this final chapter are quite simple and very direct to us. Yet at the same time, very real life uh, and very profound. So on one level, we all recognize, I think, on the surface what the verses are saying to us, but yet there's a depth to them that we can probe and we can see. And stated, I think, succinctly and very simply, and yet at the same time stated very deeply and of uh, pertinence and relevance to us. And I think the writer does this, especially in chapter 13, uh, especially after he's given us all these warnings throughout the epistle, he does this so that we will not forget... And we will not neglect the instructions of God. Sometimes it only takes a line, doesn't it? Like, uh, keep your life free from love of money. To be very profound, to be very important to us. I mean, I think every one of us would recognize that just in that little simple sentence there is so much that applies to us. Or, be content with what you have these are the maxims of god these are the commands of god these are the directions that god provides us you'll find them in the world too in some form or other uh, these kinds of little statements but here uh, this is all ultimately about what you are satisfied with what satisfies you and so the the writer to the hebrews gives us in these very basic matters not his own view on things but is providing us with God's view on these very important matters. And when I talk about the sanctity of life, I talk about marriage, and when I talk about the safety of life, I'm talking about our possessions and the money that we have. So matters that uh, are simple in the passage so far, for example, if you look at verse 1, it's just quite simply about loving one another, isn't it? He says, let brotherly love continue. Just like that. Simple statement, direct, profound uh, but a matter that's so crucial to the Bible. In fact, love in the Bible is, of course, at the very heart of who God is and what we are meant to be like as Christians. So the writer to the Hebrew is not coming up with something new. He is just simply stating the old commandment and the new commandment that we should love one another. And then he tells us in verse 2 that we should be hospitable to strangers. Hospitable to strangers, That we should demonstrate that we love other people, that we care even for strangers. And then he tells us that we ought to be willing to identify with the suffering. What uh, the writer to the Hebrews is doing is telling us that there is a Christian community, a Christian congregation, a church. Churches that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those churches, they are all to be governed by these things. It's not independency, you do your own thing because you have come up with your own ideas. No, every single church, every single Christian falls within the camp of what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us here. Those three things in verses 1, 2, and 3 are what I call the sacrifices of love. They are a sacrifice. It costs something to love someone else. It costs something to be hospitable to someone else. It costs someone uh, something to identify with people who are suffering and being persecuted, strangers and so on. It costs something. Those are the sacrifices of life. And God calls each one of us, he calls every Christian to be like that. Christian love, Christian hospitality, Christian identification are very practical things, yet how difficult they can be. It always amazes me when people want to when people say, Well, you need to be practical. i I truly agree with that. You need to be practical. In fact, all of God's word is practical. And yet isn't the very thing you struggle with the very practice, the very practice of the doctrine, And so it's important to know the doctrine for the practice. So the practical, though it may seem to many people to be something simple and light, and uh, fluffy on the outside is in reality a very profound thing let brotherly love continue is simple but yet profound and deep and how difficult it can be to love someone else how difficult it can be to make sure that your life is a hospitable life or that you are willing to identify with suffering christians and so on now, we've already considered, if I can draw your attention to verse 4, the sanctity of life, particularly as we find it, or the writer to the Hebrews tells us, in marriage. But also, of course, that's something that applies to married and to unmarried people alike, the sanctity of life, because there he is talking about purity. It's not just in marriage, you, of course, that purity must exist, but purity must exist outside of marriage. So that subject is much vaster than just... Uh, Uh, let marriage be honorable and let the marriage bed be undefiled and one thing we know about marriage in the Bible is that it is a creation ordinance it comes before the fall Adam and Eve are joined together by God before the sin came into the world, brought together by God. So marriage is very crucial to God. In fact, God in Genesis chapter two makes makes His own comment a father, I mean, a, a man should leave his father and uh, his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two of them become one. And then Jesus Himself in His Divorce statements or his statements on marriage and divorce posed by the Pharisees says quite clearly that God's statement in Genesis 2 Is simply defined by what God has joined together, let nobody put asunder So marriage is important to God, I think we all recognize it, we all all know that In fact to mess with marriage, to tamper with marriage uh, in any way has consequences, has difficulties in life And people who have been through marriage and divorce, they are fully aware of the difficulties and the consequences, I think, that arise out of such difficult circumstances. When I use the word sanctity, I simply mean the word pure. It refers to purity. So verse 4 is very much about a commitment, isn't it? Marriage is a commitment. It's a commitment to God, it's a commitment to someone else, and it's a commitment before God, and those two statements, let marriage be honorable or held in honor, and let marriage be undefiled, because God will judge the sinner, the immoral, the unrighteous, right? So it is about a particular commitment, an ongoing commitment, that we are to be committed to. So when we come now to verses 5 and 6, the writer to the Hebrews From that commitment to another subject that I think is very pertinent and relevant to us the subject of contentment. Are we content people? And money and possessions in the verses are his focus in dealing with contentment as it ought to be because many of us, in fact, most of us might even think that having these things, money, possessions are the very things that provide us with security in life and safety in life and you often hear uh, advertisements uh, on the radio or the, the television about your retirement and providing for your retirement have you got enough are you safe are you secure have you talked to one of our advisors have you have you picked up the phone and spoken to somebody who deals in gold or whatever it is Uh, What are you doing about that? I mean, you've got to be sure that you're secure when you get to that retirement time and age. And many Christians are occupied with those kinds of things. The reality is, though, that if you think that money and possessions provide safety and security in your life, that that kind of thinking is an illusion. And it's an illusion because you may have money today and possessions today and yet have nothing tomorrow. And, of course, this country and the world, the Great Depression, uh, back in the n- late 1920s, uh, showed people what it was like to have nothing. No jobs, no bread, no food, no clothes, no nothing. Difficult lives, difficult hardships. We are, we are so prosperous in our time that that very prosperity that we enjoy, uh, we take to give us contentment. And so as I use my, my, my familiar example of all the, the cereals in the, in the grocery store, I mean, they are just, just so many varieties, right? Uh, and we're content to see the varieties. We're not content, in fact, I think in conversations you hear people now saying the shelves are empty. And they're concerned about the shelves being empty, yet what is on the shelves is incredible, right? You're not going to starve with what is on the shelves. In fact, you've got enough there for a lifetime. But we get concerned when one shelf is becoming empty, and two shelves become empty, the supply chain is breaking down, and so on, right? So you can have these things today, but tomorrow you might not have them. When you don't have them, when you have nothing, that's when the real test, the real issue of whether you are a content Christian or not uh, comes in, because most of, us, most of us are comfortable with the fact that I have provisions I don't have to worry about tomorrow because it's all there for me, and that makes me content. But that is not biblical contentment that is deception and we have to watch over and watch out for that now don't get me wrong because all of those provisions are gracious gifts of God and we should thank God first for all that we have and all that we can enjoy so I want you to notice that the writer to the Hebrews in verses 4 through 6 tells us two things number one he talks about purity number two he talks about your possessions your purity, your possessions. So number three, uh, sorry, in particular, he talks about your marriage and your money. Your marriage and your money. Now, what perhaps is a little aside here is that marriage and money go hand in hand because they're life. You can't have a marriage and not talk about money, about how you're going to function, how you're going to live, what job do you have, and so on. So marriage and money go together. You just can't avoid that. They belong together. Why is that? Because marriage and money are about relationships. They're about relationships. They're about very personal relationships. None of us goes around talking about the marriage bed relationship. None of us goes around talking about, you know how much money I've got in the bank, in my savings account. Nobody talks like it because it's personal. It's a personal relationship between you and your spouse and between you and your possessions or you and your money. Uh, it's a very particular relationship. It's a very private relationship. We all recognize that the marriage bed is very personal and is very private. And so too is managing what God has blessed you with and that what God has given you with, it is a very personal privileged Relationship And th- those things are privileges and blessings that we all enjoy. Marriage is such a privilege, isn't it? And money and having possessions is such a privilege. We would call them the gifts of God. That God is the one who gives us these things. That God is behind uh, these very important areas in our life. Both areas, by the way, marriage and money, are crucial to life, are uh, normal to life. In fact, I, when I was considering this verse, verse 5, it struck me all of a sudden that perhaps here is one of the most insightful verses in all of the Bible, verse 5. And there are two statements that make up verse 5, aren't there? Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be, with con- be content with what you have. So notice number one, keep your life free from the love of money. You can't actually keep your life free from money you need to live but that's not the point the point is keep your life free from love of money and secondly be content with what you have in other words be content with what you possess possess the relationship by the way between those two uh, statements is really striking when you think about it for because if you fail in the one that implies you fail in the other so for instance if you have a love for money You probably will find you're not content with what you possess and what you have. You want more because your money can buy you more. And so it goes the other way as well. So to love money will soon enough manifest itself by a craving, an insatiable craving, to have more, to buy more, to possess more. And that just simply demonstrates a lack of content, lack of contentment. If you're not content with your possessions, not content with what you have, you probably would be very pleased to come into some money, to receive some money, to take care of you, to take care of your problems, to receive more if you're not content. So if marriage, on the one hand, reflects character, a purity, the writer talks about, one way or another, so too here is covetousness at the root Of all of the problems that verse 5 speaks about or addresses. Now, you know, the the New Testament uh, makes a very close connection between immorality, immorality which is addressed in verse 4. God will judge the immoral, right? So, the New Testament makes a very close connection between that subject, immorality, and the subject of covety. They are bound together in the Bible. In fact, the Old Testament shows in the mind of God, from the commandments of God, commandment number seven and commandment number eight, you shall not commit adultery leads immediately to you shall not steal. And as we know, finally, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, every possession that your neighbor has, and so on. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, do not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or herself who calls herself a sister if he is guilty of immorality or greed. Or greed. Ephesians 5, 3 to the Ephesians, immorality or covetousness must not be even named among you, he says. Mr. Moffat, a commentator, says that the love of luxury... And the desire for wealth opens up opportunities for sensual indulgence, for immoral, immoral practices, and so on. The apostle Paul had words to say to his little protege Timothy, and I want to turn, if you will, turn with me to First Timothy chapter six, because he says something there about contentment, which is so beautiful. So, will you turn with me to First Timothy chapter six, and beginning in verses six through ten? 1st Timothy chapter 6 the Apostle Paul says that godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world that's the Job perspective right I came into the world naked and I leave the world naked I come with nothing I leave with nothing but verse 8 but if we have food And clothing, with these we will be content. So, what is it that we need for contentment, food and clothing, the basics of life, right? Verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or brought about much trouble to their lives. Now, if you could govern your life by those four or five verses there, that would be just great, wouldn't it? Because that seems to me what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. Keep your lives free from love of money so godliness is what is needed and particularly you'll notice godliness with contentment is great gain it's to our advantage the apostle paul tells timothy why is it to our advantage because you brought nothing in and you take nothing out and the only thing that really is necessary for you to be content is something to eat and something to wear but if you want more if you desire to be rich then you fall open up the door to many temptations to many difficulties many hardships and many struggles so I want to consider these two statements with you from uh, chapter 13 first of all keep your life free from love of money you see that word keep that word keep is not in the original okay so in fact what is in the original is just one word that we have translated into the phrase, keep your life free from love of money. Just one word in the original text. Uh, This word, afilaguros. Afilaguros. Just one word, which means, that word, afilaguros, means not loving money. That's what it means. Not being greedy. So, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, you have the same word when Paul tells Timothy that someone should not be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not a philagouros, not a lover of money. What's his idea in that word? The idea is about being greedy, wanting more, needing more because, because the lack of contentment is really I am not satisfied with what I have I'm not satisfied with just my food and my clothing but I need more to satisfy me, to gratify me and so the idea of greed is here and so too you can see the idea of since I want more, it's the idea of coveting I'm always thinking about possessing more wanting more, craving more And the writer to the Hebrew says and Paul says keep your life free from that mode of thinking from that way of thinking in other words to keep your life free from the love of money you should have loose hands and a generous heart in fact having loose hands allows you to disperse with what you have been blessed with with from a generous heart and so what I should aim at is aim at is that what I have is a gift from God it's not mine It's God given to me so that I can dispense with it and use it for the glory of God. Loose hands from a generous heart. Now you know many people can give stuff away, give money away, give possessions away, but keep their heart to themselves. And it's not in their heart to do such things. And I'm sure that in the world and even in Christian lives there are many who begrudge their giving. Of certain things at certain times. We ought not to be like that. Loose hands, generous heart. So my private attitude towards money is what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he says keep your life free from love of money. It's about my attitude towards those things. How do I see money? How do I view money? Do I have to have more of it? To secure my future? Am I worried about my future? It was the Lord Jesus Christ who so pertinently said, Be anxious. To put it in another way as Paul did, Be anxious for nothing. When Jesus said, Why are you anxious about these things that are basic to life? Or about all the things that you think are necessary? You should just be content with what you have. So in fact the text as we read it here, when it says keep your life free. The word free, we know, when we read English, of course, implies an absence of the wrong attitude in the sense that you read it here in the text. What's the attitude? Love of money is the attitude. Keep my life free from that attitude. Keep my life free from the wrong attitude. So to be free of something is to not be troubled by it, is not to be cornered by it, is not to be Uh, put in such a predicament that when I'm confronted with the need to give or the need to share I actually backtrack in my mind and say I can't do that but maybe out of grudging heart I give instead of a generous heart and the writer to the Hebrews is is saying you should not have that restriction or restraint in your mind and in your heart when you're confronted by the necessities of others and the necessities of yourself. So to be free from someone is not to have it or not to be troubled by it in one form or the other. And so the idea of keep myself, keep yourself free from the love of money, because he says keep, or that's translated as keep, implies that this is not something that is natural to you. This is something that you have to think about. This is something you have to pray about. We don't just naturally have generous, loose hands. We learn by practice. We learn by doing. Now, some people are more generous, more open-hearted than others. We all acknowledge that. But nevertheless, the sins... Of life affect every single one of us because Paul says if you desire to be rich then you open the door to temptation now you may not desire to have billions but you may desire something that is more than what you have and that could be termed more richer than what you are now and that alone would open the door to danger and to temptation So to what what will make me content? Paul tells Timothy it's godliness with contentment that is the great gain. And keep your life free, as the writer says here, from the love of money. Craving or coveting are very real sins that every Christian, I think, has to deal with, that you have to contend with. I mean, think of the examples in the Bible, right? It was Achan who coveted the Babylonian garment and the wedge of gold. And silver stole it from ai and put it in his tent and buried it told his family that he had done that because they also fell into the judgment of god uh, under joshua but achan coveted and what happened to him he was stoned to death burned up and there were no more remains of achan or his family left because god does not tolerate coveting like that. And, of course, it brought disaster upon Israel at that time. Well, what about Judas? is it not Judas who sold out our Lord Jesus Christ for 30 shekels of silver? Some pieces of silver. A little bit of money. And we know from Judas's character, which nobody seemed to pick up at all, except the Lord Jesus Christ knew Judas' heart, that he liked to help himself to the money bag. His heart was in the money bag. He coveted whatever was in the money bag, and took whatever he wanted when he pleased. He coveted such things, and of course, he really uh, coveting covetousness became the rock on which his life was made shipwreck, and the ruin of his soul took place. Well, what about Gehazi, who because Elisha rejected what Naaman offered? Gehazi said, "Why is my master doing this? I will run after this man, and I will get something." And of course, he told a lie in why he wanted to accumulate whatever it is he wanted to accumulate. And of course, he took the, baba, the, the garments, uh, the change of garments that Naaman had. And what happened to him? Where did you go, Gehazi? Well, I didn't go anywhere, master. Oh no, but my spirit went with your spirit when you went after the man, Naaman. And you took those garments for yourself. You see, coveting follows you everywhere, wherever you go. Whatever situation you find yourself in, you will find yourself having to deal with coveting because you're confronted with something that is not yours and it's a very real sin. And the Ten Commandments, of course, stress that you should not steal and you should not covet not just your neighbor's wife, but your neighbor's house, your neighbor's donkey, and all of those other things. Coveting is not just in the realm of money, is it? It also extends to possessions. Someone has said that money is like seawater. The more you drink it, the more thirsty you become. You want more of it. You taste it. Tertullian, the church father, said that nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Nothing that is God's can be bought with cash. John Wesley said, when I get a little money, I get rid of it as quickly as I can, lest it find a way into my heart. So he recognized he had a problem. Now, depending on what translation you have, if you have the New American Standard, if you have the King James and Ameri- uh, the New King James, you'll notice different translations. <coughs> For instance, New American Standard says, let your character be free from the love of money. The King James says, let your conversation be free from the love of money. The New King James says, let your conduct be free uh, or be without covetousness and so on. So, those translations, if you want to look at them and examine them, your character, your conversation, your conduct, reveal who you are, reveal who I am. So, keep yourselves free, the writer says, from the love of money, because it reveals who you are, if you love it. It shows the kind of character you have. It shows the kind of dependency you have toward it. It shows what your conversation might be about. Your general conduct in life is surrounded by the love of money. Keep your life free, he says. of it. That's the first statement. Second statement is be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. And perhaps that line in and of itself could be said to be the most insightful thing in all of Scripture. It's kind of on the same level as we should be thankful people. Be thankful. I like how the Apostle Paul just tags that on to certain of the statements that he makes. And be thankful. Give thanks. And Paul always said, I always give thanks for you. Always remembering you in my prayers, whatever church he wrote to. He was always thanking God. Because thanksgiving is a remarkable thing about how to be content in life. It shows your heart, right? Right? So, the cure to the first statement, keep your life free from the love of money, is this whole issue of being content with what you have. Contentment is the cure. And as I said, it's very similar to being thankful. Thanksgiving takes care of groaning and moaning and moping about your sufferings, about your trials, about your health issues, about your whatever it is. It is thankfulness that prevents a person from focusing on those things. In fact, the Lord Jesus would say, the cure for anxiety is, how much do you trust me? How much do you really trust me? Because if you don't trust me enough, you will be anxious about many things. Martha, Martha, you are troubled by many things, not some things. But her mind was a whirl with just full and filled with all kinds of things. When Mary... One thing is necessary, Jesus said, and Mary has found it. She sat at the feet of Jesus and she learned from her master. That's all that was required by Jesus. But Martha, you are troubled by many, many cares. And dear congregation, it's possible for us in a variety of situations, whether we're young or whether we're old, to be troubled by different kinds of cares and so on. The cure to those things is ultimately, are you content with Christ? It is contentment that abolishes coveting. Because it removes it. If you're content, you don't need somebody else's stuff. You're happy with what you have. You're happy with what you own, with what you possess. So contentment is like water on the fire of coveting. It puts it out. It gets rid of it. It's like thanksgiving or thankfulness on the water or the fire of being a grouch or being a complainer. It's thanksgiving that puts that out. So to be content, we could say, first of all, from the first statement, is to be generous, keep your life free from love of money, and secondly is to be grateful, to be content. Now, I don't mean by contentment that you're lazy with your life situation, because there are many people who are content to do nothing, and many people who are content to just give up. That's not contentment, that's not not contentment with godliness, is it? That's contentment with yourself. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about contentment with, with spiritual matters and spiritual things that eliminate the sins that we confront. The sins of coveting, of wanting more and possessing more. So to be discontent in the context is to be greedy. Greedy is to be grasping for more and more and you want what isn't yours because that's what covetousness is all about, right? Possessing what another person has and begrudging them what they have to the point that they shouldn't have it and it should be yours. A lack of contentment is to be afraid of losing what you have. You're afraid of losing your money? You're afraid of losing your house, your possessions. A lack of contentment is to be afraid of losing what you have. Do you know that in the Bible, in Scripture, the Christian is never defined, ever, never defined by their possessions or their position in life. It's not about your job, whether you're the chairman of the bank or the company. It's not about any of that. It's not about how much you have or how much you earn. In fact, the Christian is only, he or she is always and only defined by Christ, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Or more precisely, a Christian is simply defined by who she, he now is in Christ. Now how do you measure your life? What is the measuring stick? It's Christ who is the measuring stick, the yardstick. So, it's no wonder David could say in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Every provision I need is in my shepherd. Because what does the shepherd do? He takes care of me. He provides for me. He feeds me. He gives me water to drink. He refreshes me. He disciplines me. He cares for me. I mean, that's all in the word shepherd, right? I lack nothing, therefore. So those opening lines are simply a reflection of, of the heart attitude that the, that the writer to the Hebrews is talking about. Be content with what you have. Because if you are, you lack nothing. Because you recognize that what you have is from God, the shepherd who has provided all of that for you. The apostle Paul, as we know, had no worldly possessions. He never had a home to go back to. He never had houses in different parts of the world that he could reside in. No, when the Apostle went wherever he went, he got stuck in and worked with his hands, provided for his own needs. In fact, he describes himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 as having nothing, yet possessing everything. It's one of my favorite verses. Possessing nothing, or having nothing, yet possessing everything everything i love what he told the christians at philippi and i'd like to take you to philippians chapter 4 so will you turn again with me to philippians chapter 4 i love what he tells the saints here at this church who who, by the way were a very generous church to the apostle providing for his needs again and again and he's very thankful for them he's very grateful for them so philippians chapter 4 and look at verse 11 through 13 Paul says not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me so what's Paul focusing on? he's focusing on Christ he's not focusing on his lack thereof of whatever it is because he says I've, I've had to learn how to be content in any and every situation he says I've learned the secret of having everything and having nothing so if you have everything and you, or you have nothing contentment is still the same thing isn't it now you can have money in the bank and plenty of possessions but are you spiritually content because that's the real issue. If your contentment falls on your resting on what you have, that's not contentment. That's not learning the secret because when you lose that, that's the real test. How will you respond with nothing if you have everything? So Paul says, I've learned the secret both ends. If I have everything I'm content. If I have nothing I'm content. It's a secret that I've learned, he says. The Lord Jesus himself had nothing right. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No home for Jesus, no house for Jesus. And it was Jesus who taught us that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke twelve fifteen, Who told us to never be anxious and to lay up treasure for ourselves on earth, but to lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven. How are you laying up treasure in heaven? We do that as a congregation, by the way. We, we take the substance of our spiritual lives Monday through Saturday, and we come on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, with all that's behind us spiritually, and we bring it together to worship. And if you don't do that, if you don't have a regular church life, then you're going to be affected by not being content with these by being anxious, by being troubled. If you lay up treasure on Earth. Jesus says, it will waste away, it will vanish, and a moth will consume it, and it will be gone. And by the way, Matthew 6, that great passage on anxiety, Jesus says that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Where is my treasure? Where is your treasure? Jesus says, you don't have to be anxious about what you eat. You don't have to be anxious about what you drink. You don't have to be anxious about what you wear, which implies you don't have to be anxious about the source that gives you those very things, the food and the drink and the clothing. You don't have to be anxious about that. It's not just the food and the drink, it's what lies behind the food and the drink, the means to acquire the food, the drink and the the clothing. You don't have to be anxious about that, Jesus says. Because our Heavenly Father... Jesus says, no, you need those very things, right? Instead, Jesus says, if you want to have those things, your focus should be on the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things, the things you're worried about, wearing, food, uh, clothing, eating, all of those things will be added unto you provided you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's why Paul told Timothy, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So contentment is never described by life's luxuries. In fact, contentment in these passages is described by life's basics. Food, clothing, the very fundamentals of life. If you're not content and I'm not content with our possessions, then we will not be content with food and clothing. And the moment you love your food and your clothing, you discover or the the moment you lose your food lose your clothing, you discover that anything else doesn't really matter how many houses you have how many many possessions you have, doesn't matter if you lose food and if you lose clothing this is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in just a sentence be content with what you have he's thinking about all of these things which are very relevant to every one of us because circumstances change situations change from day to day from week to week and none of us have control over these things we want control we want to control our circumstances and situations it's only God who controls them God knows what's best for us and God gives us what we need now these Hebrew Christians they have already demonstrated back in chapter 10 the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 34 that with joy they had accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one they were quite prepared back in chapter 10 verse 34 and they had already experienced the loss of their property the plundering of their property and he says they accepted that with joyfulness wow wow how would we feel if you lost your property tomorrow? But they knew they had a better possession and an abiding possession, and their heavenly Father would provide and take care of them. But having said that in chapter 10, he still reminds them here in chapter 13 again, right, about contentment. Be content. That, that, that word, though, that phrase, be content, means to be satisfied with things present with what you have at the moment with what you have at the moment in other words whatever I have is sufficient right now whatever I have suffices it's the same word by the way that the Lord Jesus used when he spoke to the Apostle Paul and said my grace is sufficient for you you don't need anything more Paul you don't need deliverance from your physical infirmity you just need my grace that's all you need And Paul, of course, demonstrates submission to that and bears the weakness for the glory of God and the sufferings physically for the glory of God. God's sufficiency then in the Bible is ample supply. God's sufficiency in His character is ample supply for any of us. So much so that I will never lack anything. The Lord is my shepherd, mine. I lack nothing. I shall not be in want because He provides everything I need. Now, you know, many people measure success or self-worth by what they have or by how they look. Well, that's our world today, right? How much you have and how you are perceived or seen by others. But those are selfish ends. Clothing, for the sake of projecting myself as important, is wrong, is a coveting, is a greed, is sin. We know that all we are and all that we have is from the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the Pharisees who were lovers of money, Jesus said, and therefore lovers of themselves. And to be a lover of money and a lover of yourself shows that you lack trust in the care and the provision of God. It's so easy to do, right? Because tomorrow you might show distrust in God because something comes that you were not expecting, some curveball. But will you be stable and firmly fixed on the principles of keeping your life free from love of money and being content with what you have so to be preoccupied with my possessions or to be preoccupied with money shows simply a preoccupation with myself not with God that's the world that's the system that's the me time mentality little time for me to take myself away it's all about me that's selfish that's not about sharing that's about self and all of those things. That's our world. The world is obsessed with how we look, with what we have, or what you don't have. The world is taken up with those things. It was the Stoics who were formed in the 3rd century BC by Zeno. Zeno taught that, believed that in being content, it was simply a matter of self-sufficiency. I can do it. I don't know, I don't care about any of these things. I'm... I'm self-sufficient. Man is self-sufficient. But the writer is not thinking about self-sufficiency, is he? You're not thinking about self at all. In fact, the whole context is about sharing your life. Not being self-sufficient, but sharing what you have. Loving one another, being hospitable to one another, remembering those who suffer in verses 1, 2, and 3. That's about sharing your life contentment is found in the sharing of what you have and who you are, your life invested into others. So keeping your life free from love of money frees you up to give, to share, to not hold on, to be hospitable and to give everything if it comes to that because it's not mine. It's a gift. It doesn't belong to me. It's to be given, shared and I think that's what the writer is trying to get at here. In Scripture, the call to be content is based on a number of things. Number one, it's based on the presence of God. And number two, it's based on the provision of God, which both things, by the way, the presence of God and the provision of God rest on the promises of God. The promises of God. So I, to be provided for by God, to be, prov- to be protected or to have God's presence is because God has promised it. Notice the personal promise. Look at verse 5. At the end, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know that the I wills of God in the Bible are inviolable? Right? Unchangeable. Absolute. What does it mean? What God says, what God does. That's what it means. When God says I will, that's it. He will. He's not subject to change. He will do what he says. The end of verse 5, this little phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you, is probably a reference back to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. And some of the cross references make reference to Joshua 1, verse 5. When God is encouraging Joshua and he says, No man shall be able to stand against you, Joshua, all the days of your life. That just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow. No man can stand against you. I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's exactly what God has said to us, to his people. Why would you distrust that? Let's believe that, right? All that Joshua needs is found in God. I will, I will, I will, I will. In fact, the I wills of God reflect the character of God, right? God is reliable. He's not fickle. God is invincible. He never fails. Joshua, you can rely on me. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will never give up on you. It is God who is with us. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's true, isn't it? If God is for me, who can be against me? But I want you to notice in the text, it's much more than just I will, isn't it? Look what he says, I will never. I will never, he says. I did a little study of I will never. Not just I will, but I will never in Scripture. The vast majority of I will never statements are made by God. I will never. So, he says to Noah, right, in Genesis chapter 8, 21, I will never again curse the earth because of man. Neither will I ever again, from the positive side, ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Jesus said exactly the same thing, right? He said that all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Ever, ever, never, ever. I will never cast out John 6 37 now God promises that that's a promise do you believe it isn't that what the promises of God are there for in the Bible to be believed can you believe them of course you can because God made them how do you know you can believe them because God is reliable you can trust God he's not like somebody saying I promise I will never do this or I will do this for you and you, no, they fail right I promise you I'll be there at 8.30 and 9.30 comes and Zippo no, God is not like that, right? ever I can't believe it that's verse 6, right? so you look at verse 6 what does he quote? he quotes from Psalm 118 so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me that's the definition of having kept your life free from love of many and being content with what you have the Lord is my helper I lack nothing What can anybody do to me if God helps me, if God is on my side? So God's assured promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, in verse 5, leads to being confident in the very nature and character of God. And you see what he says there? He says, uh, I will never leave you or forsake you, so we can confidently say. That word confidently means to have courage. To take God's word and believe it, to take it for myself. God is saying this to me. I receive it, I believe it, and it means to have confidence. And do you know that confidence and courage relate to faith, to believing God? To believe in Him, just trusting Him. And it leads to this confession in verse 6 The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I find then, in verse 5, I can trust the Lord because of his provision. And in verse 6, I can trust the Lord because of his protection. What can man do to me? Whether I have everything or have nothing. What can man do to me? The point so far is that my money and my possessions do not keep me secure. The Lord is my helper. It's not my money that's going to get me out of a jam. It's not my possessions that I sell off and get myself out of trouble. No, it's none of that. The Lord is my helper. And notice the result of the Lord being my helper and my confidence in that is that I will not fear anything. I will not fear the loss of my money. I will not fear the loss of my possessions. I will trust because I can trust this God who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What can man do against that? Nothing, right? The whole history of the Bible is predicated on God who provides and God who protects because God has promised himself to his people. I have God on my side. What can anybody do against God? Nothing. Nothing. So it's only the Lord that can keep me secure. That's what I must put my trust in the Lord. Someone has said that, let your riches consist not in the largeness of your possessions, but in the fewness of your wants. In the fewness of your wants. That's your wealth. So where do you and I find satisfaction? Money and possessions give a physical satisfaction, but only for a time. They're fickle. They're changeable. But not God. Right? God is the one who satisfies because he says, I will provide, I am all you need, you don't need anything more than me, I am your helper, I am your shepherd, so I must trust in the Lord. If you want biblical, spiritual contentment in your life, it boils down to, do you trust the Lord for all things, in everything, so that my safety, my safety, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Is found in God, in the Lord Himself. And if that's true, I have absolutely nothing to fear in this life, in this world. Let's pray together. Now, our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our helper, our provider, our sustainer, our shepherd, that you are our Lord, our Savior, our God. If we have you, our Heavenly Father, what do we else do we need? If we have the Lord Jesus Christ, what else do we need? If we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, what else do we need? You have provided all of us, each of us, with all that is necessary for us. We thank you for daily provisions, our daily bread, our daily food, our daily clothing, our homes, our possessions, everything you've blessed us with. We praise you and we thank you but that is not what you ask of us. What you ask of us is to trust you. And so, Father, we would confess that you are our helper. We will not fear what can man do to us, that you have said that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to believe that and to trust you when circumstances are against us, when troubles come, when health difficulties arise, that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And so help us to look to you, gracious God, and to depend upon you because of who you are and because of the promises, the word that you have made and given to us. So we thank you for these things. Thank you for this lesson from the writer to the Hebrews. What a wonderful lesson it is. We thank you for this day, the Lord's Day, for blessing us. Now we ask you to send us to our homes and thank you for the first day of the week, this Lord's Day that prepares us for tomorrow and our work and labor and we pray that we might do it all confident trusting in you for your glory so we thank you for each other and thank you for our time and thank you for today and ask all of these things now with thanksgiving in the name of the lord jesus amen Amen. Amen. may the lord